Welcome to Pod Bless Canada, the Macdonald Laurie Institute's premier public policy podcast. My name is Brett Byers, Communications Manager at MLI. Today's podcast continues our ongoing series that examines Indigenous prosperity at the crossroads. Particularly, we are seeking to amplify the voices of Indigenous leaders and entrepreneurs who are on the front lines of economic reconciliation, often by way of securing meaningful partnerships for their communities in the natural resource economy. To that end, MLI Monk Senior Fellow Ken Coates spoke with Karen Ogentoves, the CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance. Previously, she served as elected chief for the Wet'suwet'en First Nation for six years and is currently an elected council member for that nation. Enjoy. Hello, this is Ken Coates. I'm a senior fellow with the McDonnell-Lurie Institute. And as followers of McDonnell-Lurie Institute will know, we've been involved for many years with a study of the impact of Indigenous people on the natural resource economy. We've taken this as being the front lines of reconciliation, an area where Indigenous people are playing a very important economic, social, political, and cultural role in redefining the natural resource economy. And I'm delighted today to be here with Karen Ogden, who is the president and CEO of the First Nations LNG Alliance. Karen, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for having me. So, Karen, just give us your background a little bit. How did you personally get involved in the energy economy? Well, I'm the former chief of my nation from 2010 to 2016. And at that time, we had a couple of pipelines that were, one was sort of negotiated already, which was the Pacific Trails Pipeline. That was signed off before my time. And then we had the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline. We started negotiations with that particular pipeline. And we all had to do a great learning curve just to sort of understand what LNG was, what it isn't, how it will impact our territory, what benefits it will bring back to the community. So I got thrown in the deep end of the pool in relation to LNG being the chief of my nation, because we hold various files as the chief, and this was one of them. So just describe for me, if you will, how the community made a decision to support the pipeline. These are really important and difficult conversations, aren't they? Yes, they are. But what we did was we sort of had a strategic plan that I built for my latter part of my chief role was we built a three-year strategy and we had a team, the legal, business and political, go forward and begin these negotiations with Coastal Gas Link. We had a lead negotiator that attended every meeting. But one of the things that we ensured that we did within the community was to have monthly community member meetings and we would have either the company come in and give information on CGL. We would go in, talk about what LNG is, what it isn't, what this agreement means. It was quite the process to ensure that we had monthly meetings and some of the documents that we produced while doing the negotiations for this agreement was one in particular is a traditional land use and occupancy study. So we had the company pay for that. We hired a company to bring our elders out on the land. They would show us what sites were not to be touched, sacred sites, where there was culturally modified trees, where there was berry picking sites. So we made sure that those were no-go zones for the company. And we involved the community as much as we could. The elders were out on the land and the territory, so they knew full well what we were doing. And every meeting, I could say that we always get the question, is this oil? Is this oil? And we would need to explain the difference between oil and LNG because there was great concern that companies would turn these pipelines into oil pipelines. 
and the people have seen the devastation of what oil spills do if a pipeline ruptured. So it was quite the process to ensure that we were inclusive of our members and ensured that they were educated and informed so that they could make an informed decision to say yes or no to this LNG pipeline. And how do you, at the end, go about making an informed decision? Is there a vote or a survey or a referendum? Or do people just by showing up at these meetings sort of indicate that they're in favor of working with the pipeline company? Well, I think what we did was we brought it to the community members. I think at that time, we weren't as well organized as we could have been, like holding a whole Wet'suwet'en First Nation nationwide referendum, which would have been more ideal and would cost money because the majority of our members live with outside the community. So it would mean making sure that we email them, phone them, find ways to involve them, giving them the information, and then having them do a vote and making sure that we do our due diligence and making sure that we get a hold of members that live without outside the community and being able to get their input on the matter. But for the most part, for our community, because it's quite small, we figured that having monthly community member meetings and doing our best to ensure that they were informed on the LNG issues. It's a long and arduous process. How do you deal with the situation now in British Columbia where particularly people who aren't from your First Nation and who aren't even from your region are protesting against the decision of the First Nation communities in the North to support the pipeline? You must have an odd reaction to that. Well, for one, you know, I think that in a lot of ways that these groups have perpetuated the division and the fracturing of our Wet'suwet'en people because now that there's a calm, as the province calls it, there's those very protesters are not anywhere around and our people are fractured. So I don't have a lot of good things to say about these groups because we're the people that have to live within our communities and work for our communities when these non-government organizations are gone. They're out of the picture now. It was well-funded. They put on a, a good show, but at the end of the day, it's our people that are left having to go way forward for ourselves. And, you know, that's a lot of nation building from the start again. It's almost like a bomb has hit our community and we're left with the devastation. We're left with the cleanup. We're left with trying to sort of pick each other up and find a way forward. So it's, it's been a tough, tough year all the way around. Oh, Karen, that's a, a very evocative way of describing it when you say that it's like a bomb has hit the community. I think, you know, the, the country as a whole really needs to understand that that's the kind of impact that these external interventions have on the community. So let's talk about this from the community point of view. You held monthly meetings, and in fact, you've been involved with other organizations since you left as chief. Um, but in these meetings, what were the main arguments people were using in favor of being involved with the natural gas industry? Well, I think that a lot of people use that term loosely, ungripped, and what does it mean to us? I guess there's a couple of things. One, a lot of people learned what undripped means and what it means to us, but I think that there's a lot of people that jumped on the bandwagon not knowing the full issues on why there was such controversy with this line. I think that was one of the issues. And and what were they hoping to get? And when the community sat down and said, okay, we're going to sign an agreement with Coastal GasLink, what were the community members hoping to get out of the process? What we did with our community is we went over the project agreement. Because it's confidential, we had our lawyers sit within our community members meeting and go over the project agreement. And one of the things that our community has been receiving is a, a payment up front 
one at final investment decision, and then one when the pipe will be in the ground. And after that, we'll have legacy payments for the next 25 years that will be coming to our community. The other piece that was it's still sort of on the table yet is the whole notion of equity ownership and what that looks like. So there's that piece. And then along with signing the project agreement was all of the three streams where nations could get joint venture partnerships with the prime contractors. And that would enable us to have companies working with the First Nations, being able to get work and revenue coming back to the community. That was the gist of the benefits to the community. But what we're finding now is the companies and their primes are looking for loopholes just to have straight contracts with businesses that don't have a joint venture partnership with the First Nation. And so because we supported this line quite significantly, we're saying this is not what we agreed to. You're finding loopholes to not involve us. That was not what we were told. So we're holding their feet to the fire making sure that everything that the project agreement says and just making sure that they're doing their due diligence and that First Nations are benefiting across the board. And the company has monthly or bi-monthly meetings with the First Nations where we share our concerns or issues that come up. I think that's really important and finding ways to address them because I think their biggest hurdle was the blockade and they made sure that they signed these benefit agreements with the elected councils, who are the legal jurisdiction, uh, the people that they must sign these agreements with. And so now, as we speak, the province and Canada are having discussions regarding the affirmation agreement. But what's happening here is that Canada and BC are leaving out the elected council. I don't know how they're moving forward. They are treaty-like negotiations, and I don't know how they're getting away with it. There's more to come as far as I'm concerned. One of the things one of the ministers had told us was that we have a calm now, and that was his intent. It wasn't to sure that the Wet'suwet'en interests were kept in mind here, because regardless of us being elected councils, we're still Wet'suwet'en, but we're being left out of the conversation. And so it remains to be seen how these affirmations that are October are going to be ratified because not a lot of the Wet'suwet'en people are being informed and kept in the loop in relation to these ongoing negotiations. Well, Karen, you know, I've been involved in, in Indigenous affairs for many, many years, and I've never seen a situation as unusual as this. The sort of pushing the elected uh, Wet'suwet'en officials to the sidelines has been very unusual, and there's lots more to be said. Let's go back and look at the other part of your life. You're also the Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations LNG Alliance. Can you tell me how the alliance came into existence? When we started the alliance, it was to educate people on what LNG was, because like I said, when we would have our monthly community member meetings, a lot of the members asked, is this oil? Is this oil? So we had to really di- differentiate about what it is. And the whole notion of starting the alliance was to feed the conduit that would help our people be educated on this line, right from the northeast where the extracting will be taking place, right through to the pipeline and then to the port and give all of the information that there is because there was concerns about fracking, there was concerns about pipeline bursts, and any of what happens in the ocean if, you know, you hear of oil spills, tanker spills. So we tried to make sure that we were being very inclusive 
and making sure that we give sound information. And a lot of it was on social media channels because that seems to be the way to go. Everybody is practically using social media now. So that was one of the avenues that we were using to educate people. And I would give a lot of presentations in relation to LNG and how we got involved, why we got involved, and what are the benefits to the community. And I think one of the biggest pieces that I think we can attach to this is the whole notion of economic reconciliation. Not a lot of people know about our history and what the term economic reconciliation means and how we want to make sure that it's implemented in a way where we can say we've done our job, where we can say, yeah, Canada has come to its realization. They have to do right by the Indigenous people. And this is one of the ways that they're going to do it. To this day, I still continue to give these talks on what economic reconciliation is and how meaningful it needs to be on the ground. Just by signing off a project agreement to appease the company is not economic reconciliation. To exclude us on joint venture partnerships and finding loopholes in the project agreement is not economic reconciliation. It's still a learning curve, not only for Indigenous people, but for the rest of Canada. And I think when you use economic reconciliation as a guiding principle when doing these agreements, I think that will get far better results. Because as we speak, we're still having to do that yet. So the Alliance was basically started to do the education piece so that people can make informed decisions. They can say, yes, I fully understand LNG now, and I understand why these First Nations leadership people are agreeing to this. And a lot of it was for the benefit to our people on the ground. One of the things that I say in our community is that we still have poor drinking water. We still have poor housing. We have mold issues. We have overcrowding. Until those issues are addressed, we can't say that we have economic reconciliation. So for me, the telltale signs are when we have better drinking water, when we have better housing, when the education rates in our communities go up and the health conditions of our people are better, then we can start to say we're moving in the right path in the right way that our people are benefiting from all of these agreements across the board. I really love the way that you describe that because so often we sort of think that signing an agreement with an energy company is the goal, that that's the reason we're doing this. And in fact, it's clear from your comments that you and the What's What and basically see the energy agreements as a way to get to the goal. And the goal is about healthy communities. It's about well-being. It's about having a decent quality of life and good standard of living. And the energy agreement is part of the process of going there. And I'm also struck by the fact that you describe this process as very complicated and ongoing. In other words, this is not a one-event a one activity. It's not where you sign an agreement and everything's fine. You're clearly having to keep working on these things day after day after day after day. You know, one of the things I tell the company is that the First Nations LNG Alliance has been a big support. And doing this work has been very tough on me because I am Wet'suwet'en. And this is where the controversy started is that there was some other Wet'suwet'en that were opposed to it. And I've been a lot of doing this process. But at the end of the day, in my heart, I knew that we were making the right decision for our people making sure that we are doing our due diligence and ensuring that our territories are being protected, the sacred sites, the culturally modified trees, all of those pieces, adhering to our traditional land use and occupancy studies, and making sure, like the question that I've always asked myself is, what we do, does it benefit our people? 
So those are key questions that we've had to ask ourselves because we could have just kept on with the, the status quo and said, you know what, I'm the chief. We're just going to run our affairs by the Indian Act and that's it. Do the bare minimum. Or we could find ways and means to find a way forward for our people to have better housing, to have better drinking water. So I think it's been a tough fall, but I'm hoping that at the end of the day, once the pipe is in the ground, we can say, yes, our people have been employed, they've been trained, some of them have careers. We have all of those things, a better quality of life and a better standard of living as we talked about. That's the proof in the pudding right there. Then we could say the company, the First Nations, the businesses can say, yes, we've done our best to really achieve economic reconciliation for Indigenous people. So I've known you for a few years, and I know how hard you work, and I know that your First Nations LNG Alliance does not have a lot of resources and that you're fighting a very complicated battle. How do you remain so positive and optimistic? You're clearly driven by the needs of the community. This is hard work. What is it that keeps you going? I've told a story when I've done presentations, and this has sort of been a pivotal point for me. Right after we signed our provincial agreement for LNG, our community and mainly our council have been just, on social media, we were just overcome with lateral violence, extreme lateral violence. And that evening, my council member phoned me, and she was crying. She was really upset. She says, Karen, did we do the right thing? She says, when our elders go to town, they're getting treated badly. Our community members are telling us that they're getting treated badly, calling us names, being put down. And that saddened me to no end. As a leader of my nation, I just thought, we didn't sign up for this part. I went to bed very saddened that night. Just a really heavy heart. The question I asked myself, and I asked because I prayed, I said, Lord, did we do the right thing? And the next morning I woke up and I just felt it in my heart and in my spirit that, yes, I did do the right thing because this is about benefits to our people. So ever since then, since that day, since that night, I've never second-guessed myself. I've never gone back and said, geez, we shouldn't have signed this. Geez, look at all the lateral violence we're receiving. I think sometimes when you pave a new trail, that's the hard part is having to cut that trail. And that's what we've done. And against all odds, we said, yes, we can say no to these projects and nobody wins. Or we could say yes to these projects and find ways so that our people are benefiting every step of the way. The results for me is knowing that, yes, this is a benefit to our community. We have the four pillar systems, education and training, health and wellness, language and culture, and housing. Those were our four most needed pillars in our community. And once we fill those pillars with our own source revenue and we're able to have better housing, we have five speakers of our language in our community. And if we start that language revitalization now, then we're on our way. So those four pillars are sort of our telltale signs that, yes, we are on our way. Yes, our community is benefiting. For me, it's meaningful because I have a spiritual life and I believe I'm on the right path with this and doing right by our people. That's where it sits for me, and I just can't be bothered. If there are people that want to continue on with a ladder of violence, I won't engage. I just won't, and I'll just keep moving forward. And I just believe in my heart that it, this is for the people, about the people, and the land. So that's sort of what keeps me grounded. 
Well, that's a, a marvelous, marvelous way to summarize your life and your spirit and your commitment, and I admire it greatly. It's so disturbing to hear the statements about lateral violence and the fact that as you make with your community some positive and constructive decisions about the future, that people push back at you so strongly. You know, what can other Canadians do to support you in the work that you're doing? I always say that for every bit of controversy, there's two sides to a coin. For me, I always allude to this because one of my professors had told me this because I, in my university years, I was so scared to debate. Like, I just was so scared to argue and lose the argument. So when he set us up for a debate, one of the things he said when I was in social work school, I firmly believed that Aboriginal children belong with Aboriginal families. And he came to me and he said, well, if you strongly believe that, then argue the other side. And so that just totally changed my frame of mind instead of being very positional and just not moving, not wanting to to move from my position. It helped me to relax and realize that there are two sides to a coin. Learn both of them and take that stance and understand why people are opposing this. So I think that's very wise. And there's always going to be two sides to an argument. And I think that once we learn the other side, then we're going to be creating more of an understanding, more of an understanding why we find those agreements and more of an understanding on why people are opposing this line. And a lot of it has to do with, I think, that whole notion of unceded territories and wanting that rights and title back. With the Wisotan, that was a, a huge case, the Delta Stayway case. And it has been left dormant, sitting there. And now the positive thing that it's been started again, but it has to be done right. It has to be inclusive of all with SOTA, even the elected councils. Even though these elected councils are a colonial construct of the Indian Act and all of those pieces, it is still the legal jurisdiction on the ground in our communities. Until that changes, until we start making those changes, it's going to remain the same. But we have to realize that that's just the way it is right now. But we can make those changes. We must ensure that we're being inclusive with all of our people, no matter what position they hold within their communities, because we're all with Sowetan at the end of the day. And we all have to live with each other within our territories. And we have to coexist. Karen, this has been a wonderful interview. I really appreciate your frankness. Your passion, your enthusiasm, your dedication to the Wet'suwet'en and to positive and constructive relationships. I love the fact that you talk about economic reconciliation in a positive way. I think that's very excellent. This has been a wonderful conversation between myself, Ken Coates, McDonald Lurie Institute, and Karen Ogden-Toes, Chief Executive Officer of the First Nations LNG Alliance and a former elected Chief of the Wet'suwet'en First Nation. Karen, you've been an absolute delight. Thank you very much for speaking to us today. Thank you for having me, Ken.